this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Next up is Pete Borum, who started Relio with a couple of co-founders. It was ultimately acquired in 2018 by a company called Fullscreen. Lots of good stuff from Pete here. A couple of things that I really loved about this interview was his discussion around the chess boards that he thinks about playing in his own mind. He talks about having four chess boards. I think, listen for that and the way he talked about disclosure among the four groups. Um, how he actually kept all of his investors in the loop as he went through the process of selling his company. Um, the idea around the length of time it takes to sell. I think that's a good message to, to reinforce. Um, the idea of having a BATNA or a best alternative to a negotiated uh, agreement, the idea of a walk away uh, uh, option, if you will. And, and the, the final idea here that I think is really brilliant, Pete brings it up at the very end, but have a listen for the way he influenced the way the acquirer thought about valuation before they got a term sheet. Many of us try to negotiate after we see a term sheet and try to make the case as to why it should be higher. But in his case, he negotiated and, and really influenced the way they thought about the term sheet and valuation before actually writing it. Uh, here's Pete Borum to tell you the rest of the story. Pete Borum, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. How are you? I'm great, thanks. I'm really looking forward to hearing about this company. I gotta admit, I read, I did some research on Relio before we started, and I was kind of scratching my head a little bit. And I'm a little bit <laughs> dense, so you're gonna have to explain it to me like I'm a child. What do you got? What did? What do you guys do? Sure, no problem. Uh, and by the way, not the first first time I've had to have this conversation. So, uh, Relio is a, a technology company, and what we do is we enable brands and advertisers. Uh, to execute influencer marketing campaigns in a much easier and more effective and accountable way. So influencer and, marketing campaigns is when I get someone famous to use my brand? Yeah. So you know, if you're not familiar with influencer marketing, just imagine the types of, of commercials that you've seen people like Michael Jordan do for Nike or for Hanes. Uh, and it's the same concept as a, as a celebrity endorsement, except instead of Nike working with you know, a, a global superstar like Michael Jordan to do a 30-second television spot, Instead, advertisers of all different shapes and sizes uh, can work with dozens of influencers, social media celebrities, uh, also known as influencers, to create dozens of pieces of, of content on YouTube, uh, Facebook posts, Instagram and Snapchat stories, etc. Okay. Uh, I, I, this is cool because I have a buddy who's, whose daughter, get this, she just started an Instagram account about a year ago and she makes these videos of her putting on kind of outlandish makeup. She's 12, by the way. Right. She has these videos. She's now got... 360,000 followers on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. When she posts a video, 
like in the morning, she'll have like 60,000 views by the end of the day. Yeah. And she's now got um, brands, I guess makeup brands coming to her. She's got an agent. So this is the kind of stuff you guys did, but in an, exactly. you make it made that whole market more efficient. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Because if you think about it, you know, think about the, the population of people creating content across YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, LinkedIn, et cetera. It's a massive, massive population of people. And so if you're an advertiser, you want to know, A, who are the people that are creating content that my products and services would kind of seamlessly fit into, right? It would be different you know, for, for that particular person that you were just describing, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for someone selling, you know, uh, fishing tackle to reach out to her. <laughs> right. Um, and so who, who's relevant, who has an audience that is likely to be, you know, qualified to buy my products or services? Uh, what's the price that I should pay to work with them? What's the process? And we really automate that process to the extent that that's possible to help people to work with a lot of content creators in a way that doesn't just kind of get bogged down in all of the uh, all of the logistical minutia. And what was the business model? Like who's paying for this product or service that sure. you're Sure. So so advertisers will pay for it. Uh, and and uh, we've always had this perspective that uh, this is an uh, this is a huge growth sector. Uh, and we've been really on the forefront of of creating and, and driving the creation of this market since 2012. And uh, and we always had this idea that unless an advertiser can spend money on influencer marketing in a very similar way to how they spend money on any other advertisement they pay for, uh, and unless they can compare the dollars spent on an apples-to-apples basis to, to the, the advertising dollars that they're spending anywhere else, then there were going to be some very you know, uh, strong uh, uh, barriers to it being able to grow in scale. And so if you are an advertiser accustomed to, buy, you know, to spending money on a cost per view or cost per impression or cost per engagement or cost per click basis uh, across Google, Facebook, uh, you know, broader uh, advertising spend, um, we want to be able to offer you the ability to spend in the exact same way and to be able to report on a, on a similar basis. And are you charging them like, a, like a, a percentage of what they spend on the platform or is it a flat fee like a SaaS model? Like how, what's the billing model? Yeah, so there we have two lines of business. We have our 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 platform SaaS line of business, and so advertisers uh, will spend a a monthly uh, fixed fee to be able to access the platform. And depending on the fixed fee that they want to pay, whether it's a higher fixed fee or a lower fixed fee, will either choose not to take some back end percentage of their spend or to to take a small percentage of that spend. Um, and separately, we have a a full service activation team. Uh, so for those advertisers who, you know, they want the um, they want the certainty that the data that is provided through our platform provides them and the visibility and transparency into the process, but they don't actually want to do the process themselves. So our team of of uh, expert account managers will will actually help them to, to create the strategy and to map out the the details of the campaign, to reach out to the talent, to contract with them, to oversee the uh, the uh, the process and, and production of that content and publish publishing of that content. Not a lot. Uh, this is such a cool the, business. The final uh, details. Yeah. Thank this you. This is such a cool business. So um, what proportion of the business was driven through agencies or versus direct or the brand itself? Like was, were you working mostly with agencies or the brands? We, we worked with agencies primarily as licensors of our, uh, of our technology. And we work with advertisers directly uh, in both, you know, the technology license as well as the, the fully managed service uh, capacity. Um, you know, it's always, it's always easier to work directly with the brand, um, just because in, in any type of, of, uh, process where communication is important, 
the more direct the line of communication is between you and the, the decision maker, the, uh, the easier it is to make sure that, you know, you're communicating effectively versus kind of having intermediaries in that process. Talk, um, about, the cap- talk about the capital structure of the company. I understand you had a co-founder sure. and, yeah. and, and brought in some investment. Maybe just talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Three co-founders. Uh, so there's myself and then, uh, uh, Ben Williams, who was a classmate of mine at Wharton, uh, Dan McKenzie, who was a classmate of mine at Stanford. Um, and then, dude, you're like uh, the smartest guy I've ever met. Wharton no, and Stanford. No, are you kidding I, me? I'm from, I'm That's from ridiculous. Kentucky. They had, they had a hillbilly quota they had to fill. And so <laughs> you know, I, okay. I got just under the radar, but, um, so uh, ben, and Dan, my brother, and who? my brother, Mark Borum, uh, is my mother's favorite son, uh, was also one of the, one of Love the co-founders it. as well. Yeah. Okay, so you got three three co-founders. Did you guys all, I mean, kick in some cash? Like, how did you get things started? We basically, so uh, I put in some money up front just to kind of cover early expenses. Uh, and then, you know, people were, were working uh, in a part-time capacity, you know, because effectively none of us, you know, none of us were flush with cash of our own. So being able to uh, uh, to put in cash was challenging. Being able to, uh, to dedicate this full time without, you know, a, a steady source of income was challenging for people. And so we, we kind of worked on this for, you know, seven to eight months, uh, and then finally got our first angel investment of a hundred thousand dollars. Um, and you know, then everybody left their jobs and started working on it full time. Uh, we brought in a couple of people, uh, and you know, over the course of the next year, year and a half, I raised an additional, uh, $500,000 from friends and family and, you know, five, ten, twenty-five thousand dollar checks. It was a very challenging, kind of grueling process. Um, and then after two years, we we raised our first uh, venture capital money. Um, and all told, over the course of the six years that we ran the business, um, you know, we built it to fifty people and raised around fifteen million dollars in capital. Got it. And how much of the equity were you guys able to hold on to through all that money raising? Uh, so. I think that you know we went through uh, we went through three rounds of of capital raising, and so uh, each time we tried to uh, tried to hew toward um, uh, some fairly uh, market level uh, you know standards of dilution. So you know typically in any type of, of fundraising round, uh, you know a good rule is that you want to be able to raise the money that you need, and to do that by selling. Uh, you know, 25 to 33% of the company at, at any given time. Um, and, you know, that all depends on A, how much money you need, you know, B, what, what is the valuation that, you know, would, would allow you to raise that money at that level of dilution. And then, you know, see how much leverage do you have in the conversation versus how much leverage do your investors have. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, if you, uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to disclose specifically, you know, how much, you know, what the percentage was, but if you, if you take, um, kind of three successive rounds of 25 to 33% dilution, then you can do the math on that. And in hindsight was, how do you feel about the way you capitalized the business was, what are some of the kind of qualitative words you'd use to describe that now, now you know, that it's behind you? Uh, you know, I, wish that I had been able to raise more capital and I wish that I had been able to raise more capital at, you know, similar dilution levels, uh, that we experienced. Um, th- this was by no means a widely accepted premise, uh, when we were first going out to raise money, uh, it became a very widely practiced, very, you know, well-known kind of market segment. But early on we were having conversations with investors and, and, and advertisers, advertisers, especially who were saying, you know, look, I, I control, 
every pixel of every frame of every 30 second ad that I'm, that I'm putting up on television and you want me to, uh, to give that, you know, my budget and the place, my billion dollar brand in the hands of, uh, content creators on the internet who are creating videos about dogs on skateboards or worse. (laughs) Um, and I was saying, well, look, you know, everybody's skipping your ads, you know, when's the last time, you know, if, if you go to your, your YouTube channel, you've got, you know, uh, uh, 20 videos each that have an average of around a thousand, a thousand views on it. So how well is that, is that budget you know performing for you? And so, you know, over time it became something that was much, it was much clearer. Um, but by that time there were a lot more, uh, competitors in the market as well. And so I felt as though there's a scene in, there's a scene in, in Breaking Bad, um, uh, when Walt is talking to, uh, to Skyler and now Walt's, you know, full of it. Um, we were actually, you know, talking about something that was real. He was, he was totally trying to mislead her, but he said something about, you know, I wish there was some combination of words that I could use, you know, to convince you of what I'm saying. And that's kind of how I felt is like, you know, early on, I saw this, this opportunity so clearly that I felt like I was the only person in the market who was seeing, and I was having conversations and these investors were kind of scratching their heads saying, well, maybe, um, and then, you know, time went on and, and the vision became, you know, hundred percent validated. Um, but you know, we had been able to raise a lot more money a lot sooner than we would have been able to accelerate, um, and establish a, a, a far more dominant market position than, than we were capable of by the time that, uh, the market finally came around. To that. And how did you value the company in, in that f- fundraising? Like what was the, like, how, how did you put a price on it? I mean, it probably yeah. wasn't worth very much, or maybe it was. Tell, tell me about that. Well, you think about, you know, the really at the end of the day, venture, venture valuations come down to three things. It's how much money does the company need to execute against a plan? And, you know, that plan itself has to be very credible. Otherwise, you're not going to raise any money, right? So it's kind of like a binary. Are you going to raise money or are you not? And if you've got a really good plan that you, that, you know, uh, is executing towards a, a potentially huge vision and the details make sense and the people who are running it are credible, uh, then you can raise money. So the question then becomes, you know, what's it worth? And so what's the amount of money that you need to execute against that plan? What's the valuation where if you were to, to raise that amount of money, you know, you'd have to, to sell 25 to 33% of the company to the investors. Um, and how much leverage do you have over the conversation? Right? So as opposed to publicly traded companies where, uh, you're looking at, you know, um, revenue multiples or EBITDA multiples or, or net income multiples, or whether you have a very clearly established, you know, market comparable, comparable, or you have, uh, you know, a discounted cash flow looking into the future. Things are so highly variable in early stage companies that, you know, you want to put those numbers together because it, it, it helps to provide a sanity check for whatever valuation that you're asking for. It also helps to, to communicate to the investors that you're a sophisticated, uh, you know, financial person so that, you know, that, that you, you're looking at this from rational, uh, widely accepted business standards. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it comes down to leverage and how much money you need. Uh, and that's, that's, that's basically it. Got it. So you ultimately raised, uh, I think, $15 million, you said, um, in addition to a friends and family round, an angel round. Were you always planning to sell the business? Did you have that? Like, What was the trigger that made you want to sell in the first place? Sure. So, you know, the online video space is very fast moving, uh, in, in a way that's almost hard to wrap your head around. Uh, you know, if you look at just the growth of YouTube viewership alone, uh, between, uh, 2015 and 2017, uh, it grew 500% in terms of monthly watch time in just those two years, uh, from a base of, um, 
uh, 6 billion hours of content watched every month to 30 billion hours of content watched every month. Uh, and just to put that in context, 6 billion hours watched every month is the equivalent of, um, uh, excuse me, like 10,000 years of video watched every single day. Um, and so to have grown that amount in that period of time is just, is mind blowing. And Facebook was growing at that time period. Snapchat was growing at that time period. Instagram was growing. Netflix, Amazon Prime Video. So the amount of, of video content that's being produced and consumed is just growing at a, at a mind boggling scale. Um, and so there are a ton of opportunities uh, for entrepreneurs to create value and solve problems in that ecosystem. Uh, and so it was, it was fairly clear to me that, uh, that the number of, of problems that needed to be solved would, were far greater than the number of problems that any one company, you know, Amazon, Facebook, YouTube included, uh, could possibly solve. And so for me, it was, what are problems that we can solve better than anyone else? Uh, and then just really narrowly focus on those problems so that we can find companies that are, uh, that are, are complementary uh, and also best in class companies. And then we can combine our forces after some time. Um, and so for me, it was, uh, uh, you know, we weren't actually in the market to sell. I thought it was a little bit early for us to sell. We were out raising our, our series B uh, and we were raising from uh, strategic venture capital companies, you know, from, you know, corporate venture capital, as well as pure play VCs. Uh, and full screen was one of the companies that we reached out to. And I'd had a lot of admiration for them. I'd been, I'd been following them fairly closely since I started the company in 2012. And, uh, and so we had a, a number of really good early meetings. Um, and they said, look, we're not really interested in investing, but we are interested in acquiring you. And I said, well, that's not really what we're, we're going after right now, but, um, you know, make an offer and we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, and things just kind of progressed from there. And, uh, and I wasn't really looking for it, but the more that I thought about, uh, the, the, the position that a, a combined full screen plus Relio could, could hold in a market that had become otherwise fairly fragmented and very competitive, um, started to get me really excited. Um, and I was already really sold on the, on the, the business that they had built in the team. Um, and so, you know, we just kind of kept taking those steps until here we are. It's funny because, you know, this, this whole kind of journey of raising a round of financing and one of the people on the other side of the table saying, well, we're really not interested in investing, but we, we would be interested in acquiring. It, we, I've heard that a few times. It's interesting that, that that's what happened to you. Did you then go out and get competitive uh, offers uh, in addition to full screen or how, how did that work? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, I was, I, I, emotionally, I was very excited about, uh, about being able to combine forces with full screen from a more kind of, you know, rational level. Uh, I, I remember that you always need to have some alternative, uh, because you know, you, you always need in a, in a negotiation, uh, to have the ability to walk away from the table, uh, or at least to be able to make a credible threat that you can walk away. Uh, because there will be a time that comes in that conversation that you are going to be glad that you have the leverage that those options create for you or, where you're going to wish that you did have that leverage. And it's just a question of whether you end up, you know, glad or wishing that you were glad. Um, and so, you know, I was, I was, I was very, uh, excited about the full screen offer, but I knew that if we didn't have, uh, alternatives available to us, then there would come a time where, uh, 
I, I would I would wish that we had. So I was definitely working on that. How did you get other alternative offers without alienating full screen? Because there's nothing, you know, some acquirers will say, look, I'm not going to get into a bidding, you know, contest here. Uh, you know, if you want to have a conversation with, with us full screen about acquisition, then let's do that. But, you know, if you go out and, and we're not going to, you know, get involved in some sort of auction process. Did they mm-hmm. say anything like that? And how did you stick on around that? Well, yeah. Well, so you have to you have to imagine that this process goes through a number of steps, right? So there's a lot of conversation about the deal up until a point where there's a term sheet that's produced, and during that first stage where the conversation is happening, um, there are no you're, there, there's no obligation to the other party not to go out and have conversations with other people, right? Um, once a term sheet is produced and there's a non compete, then there is an obligation not to go out and talk to other people, right? Um, and so. Uh, uh, so there are, you know, one, one piece of advice that I would, that I would give to people throughout this process is that you want to get your shareholders involved as early as possible. Um, odds are that they have been through this process a lot more times than you have, and they're going to have perspective that uh, is going to be really helpful for you and it's your choice whether to listen to it or not. Um, but another thing is that, um, uh, you know, two, two other benefits of having them go through the process with you is that, uh, one, there's a lot of of Monday morning quarterbacking and any type of these situations where pe- people are going to second guess whether or not uh, they could have done a better job at having that conversation and negotiating that deal than you could. Um, and the more involved they are in that process, the less second guessing there will be. And additionally, the more involved they are in the process, the more knowledge they have. Um, you know, I know in our situation, uh, without giving too many details, um, I went into a, uh, a, a an exclusivity process where I wasn't allowed to have conversations with other people, but I had no control over whether or not our investors were going out and having conversations with other people to see if they could improve their hand. Right? I could just tell them, "Look, you know, you are you are your own entity. You are not on the board. You represent your own interests. I can't tell you what to do or what not to do. Um, you know, if you find other opportunities, you know." just so you know, this exclusivity period ends on a certain date and I can't talk about it until then. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it creates, it creates leverage such that if that exclusivity period then does come to an end and the deal hasn't yet moved to, to, uh, to some closure, um, then you have, you have the ability to say, well, listen, you know, we gotta, we have to move this along because otherwise we're going to, we've got other alternatives. Interesting. So, you know, the with sophisticated venture capitalists at the table, and it sounds like that's what happened in your case, you know, they may be, you know, quietly working in their own best interests behind the scenes while you've signed the NDA, they haven't or the non compete, they nest they they have not. Is is that would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think, you know, it it, it depends, you know, at the board level, at the if there are people who are like actively involved in the business, then uh it's it's a it's, it's definitely something that I'm not, you know, I would not advise people to try and find ways to, to, to violate, uh, their, um, uh, their non-competes or the, you know, the, no shop. Yeah. Yeah. um, it, but it is, it's, it's not commonsensical to think that people aren't going to pursue their own best interest, uh, in any of these situations. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, uh, if people were coming to me saying, um, Hey, listen, I'd like to be able to explore other alternatives. You know, my response to them would say, listen, I can't discuss that with you. 
uh, and neither can I stop you from doing, you know, whatever you think is in your, in your best interest. Got it. Got it. That's helpful for sure. It sounds like, um, you might've, you know, learned the hard way. I, I don't know if that's putting words in your mouth or not, but you tell me or, um, about keeping investors in the loop as you go through the process. Maybe can you talk at all about how you kept, you know, the various investors from the angel round to the friends and family to the VCs? How did you keep them in the loop as you were having these conversations with full screen and others? And is there any kind of learning you could share with other other folks that might be going through a similar process? Sure. Well, I'm not going to say whether I learned the hard way or whether I'm glad that somebody, you know, gave me this advice up front and I followed it. Um, you guys will have to kind of you know jump to your own conclusions. <laughs> Read but, between the lines. Yeah. yeah um, but uh you know, it, keeping people apprised of the situation well in advance of everything is just good corporate governance, just in general. It's just good communications. You know, we would we would do our best to send out uh, very detailed uh, quarterly updates every three months. Um, and I think that you know, I we were told on a number of occasions that we were exceptionally good at at, at keeping our our shareholders updated uh, just by taking the time to sit down and 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 go through that, which is a, a good exercise for. The management team as well, um, because uh, it's hard to really fully appreciate um, how far that you've come or how closely you're hewing to whatever strategy that you set out, unless you really take that time to sit back and uh, and to to recap and review things on a regular uh, basis in a disciplined way. Um, as the process was going on, uh, you know, we we kept the 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 kind of longer tail of our shareholders uh, and the friends and family and and so on uh, apprised of the process through those. Uh, quarterly updates as well as uh, quarterly conference calls. Um, the the more that someone had invested in the company, the more frequently I would communicate with them, uh, and I'd have I'd have phone conversations with people, um, you know, on a regular basis. Um, you know, our we'd have board meetings um, on a on a very regular basis, uh, and uh, and the the board directors that I worked with were also highly involved in our business, um, and so I would have conversations with them you know, a couple times a week, uh, by phone, uh, you know, many times. And so, um, it was really just a matter of, of a mixture of formal, regularly scheduled communications, uh, that were detailed and, and, uh, and outlined all of the, the progress that had been made as well as just very informal you know, phone conversations, meetings, uh, and so on throughout. So as to, as to keep people, um, in the loop to the extent that it's appropriate. Got it. So, you obviously got a term sheet from full screen. Were you, were you able to get term sheets from others? Um, so like I, like I said before, the, um, you know, entering into a, uh, uh, entering into an exclusivity period, uh, with full screen prevented me from entertaining the, the option of getting term sheets from other people. There was a, uh, you know, a requirement that if we did receive any other term sheets, that there was a, a, a an obligation to disclose, that to uh, to full screen throughout the process. So, you know, we weren't going after uh, other term sheets. Um, the uh, the investors who may or may not have been out in the market, you know, pursuing other alternatives, uh, you know, in in support of their own self interest, um, were not empowered to uh, to get term sheets from other people. Um, so, there were. There were expressions of interest um, and there were expressions of, hey, you know, uh, as soon as these guys are out of this exclusivity period, um, you know, provided that 
requirements X, Y, and Z are met, uh, then we would be interested in submitting a, a competing term sheet. Uh, but we never received any, uh, any, any directly competitive term sheets now. Got it. And, and the actual uh, deal terms themselves, I, I don't think they were disclosed by full screen. Is that right? That's correct. The, the, the price and valuation, that kind of stuff. Is there anything that you can share around, around either valuation or price that would help uh, folks kind of get a sense of, of the deal? Unfortunately, I, I can't do that. I, I would I would love to be able to, but I'm I'm uh, bound by confidentiality obligations not to talk about it. Yeah, this, it it, uh, it can be tough when 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 um, when you've got the confidentiality agreement in place. Totally understand. What's it like with you know you you obviously have um, business colleagues, associates at the VC level, those that have invested or did invest in the angel round, the friends and family round. I guess in a way, it's does it how does it feel to be so transparent with so many people in your life? I'm assuming these are people you see at Thanksgiving dinner and you know like it yeah. you know around town like does it is that does that how does that feel to be that sort of transparent with all those people? Uh, I think that it's necessary in order to keep your sanity to be transparent um, you know one way that I've thought about this process is that, uh, it's almost like I'm playing, you know, four different games of chess, uh, against four different people at the same time. Uh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not playing to win. I'm trying to play each game to a draw. Uh, and it's like, uh, on the one hand, I've got my employees, uh, you know, sitting across from me, uh, on another board, I've got, uh, the full screen and auto media teams that I'm negotiating with. Uh, at another table, I've got my shareholders, and at another table, we've got our uh, constituents that are, you know, our our customers and our vendors, you know, who are the advertisers and the and the, the social media content creators. And in each scenario, um, the person that's sitting across from you really only is able to see their board, uh, plus whatever it is that you describe to them of of the other situations, and uh, and you're you're constrained in the moves that you can make on any given board by the moves that you already have made on the other boards and the moves that you you need to make on the other boards. Um, so it might look from from one person's perspective when they're just looking at their board that there are very obvious moves that you should be making um, and that you could be making. And, uh, and so having a level of transparency where they feel free to tell you that you should or could be making those moves is really helpful because it may be that you could or should be making those moves. Uh, but it also may be that you can't because you're constrained by other moves that you've made. Uh, and the more that you can, can tell them, uh, about it, the, the better, but the more that you try and kind of obfuscate things, the more that you end up in a situation where you're just like, well, I can't remember what I told you previously or what I can tell you. Um, you know, it is challenging because there are certain things that you're just, you know, by, by confidentiality, not allowed to tell people or that are just not prudent to tell people. So you have to kind of keep that balance as well. Um, but you're constantly kind of trying to, you know, uh, uh to continue, you know, keeping the people engaged in this game with you across, you know, across each of these four tables. You don't want any of them from, you know, to walk away from the table. Uh, you don't want any of them to feel as though you're playing unfairly. You don't, you're not really trying to beat anybody. You're just trying to, like I said, kind of play, play each game to a draw. Um, and it's, it's really challenging uh, and it becomes exponentially more challenging the more that you, you know, it, the less transparent and the less, I guess, honest you are throughout the process. 
love to switch gears and talk about Ben, Dan, and Mark for a second. These are these sounds like they're friends of yours from school. How did the relationship with those guys evolve as you went through the exit? Uh, well, it's challenging. I mean, it's very, very challenging. You have um, you have people that uh, it's almost like you know being roommates with with friends of yours, right? There's there are contexts in which uh, you really like to be around somebody, but then you find out that um, uh, they don't like to clean their dishes, and they find out that you don't like to pick up you know your dirty clothes from from the floor, right? And and uh, and those types of things can uh, can can strain relationships. Um, but at the same time, uh, when you are when, when you're working toward a very uh, a very common goal, um, you know, and you you realize the extent to which you need each other, um, then there's a level of maturity I think that develops uh, where you learn how to have conversations about the dirty dishes, and you learn how to have conversations about the um, uh, about the dirty clothes, uh, and you learn you know which of your which of the idiosyncrasies of of your your co-founders can you can you deal with and which ones can you mitigate and which ones uh do you need to you know to just avoid you know having conversations with um but you know i would say that uh, you know throughout this process we really lean on each other a lot because we really need each other to get through to the end um and uh and i think that uh earlier on you know that every startup goes through severe ups and downs you know liquidity crunches and uh and and you know times of of plenty and uh uh uh, though we really kind of, I think, uh, worked out the kinks and how to deal with our differences throughout those time periods so that by the time that we were really, you know, kind of going through the, uh, the sale process, uh, there wasn't a whole lot to learn about each other that we didn't already know, you know, uh, and there wasn't a lot of, of challenges that we hadn't already practiced overcoming in, in previous years. How aligned were you guys on valuation? Um, we were pretty aligned and, and that was a conversation that we had early on as well. Uh, when we were going through the negotiation process, we said, Hey, look, you know, what are the, what are the outcomes that you are really looking to, to, to achieve from this process? Um, what are the, you know, what's the, the absolute minimum that you'd be willing to accept? You know, what's the, uh, what's the amount that you would, uh, you think that we should continue to negotiate for? Um, and so, uh, by addressing that conversation prior to receiving a term sheet, um, and being clear about what our expectations were, uh, it was much easier, you know, once the term sheet comes in to, to kind of, you know, let's compare, let's compare our reaction to this, to how we said we would react against it. Um, just to make sure that we're being consistent. And if not, then let's identify why and, and talk through that. How did you think, and maybe you can speak for yourself here or, or just talk collectively as a group. How were you guys thinking about that number? I mean, like, was it, was it some sort of magical number that you've always dreamed of getting or was it like, I want to go buy a house and therefore I need X amount of money to buy the house? Like what was driving the, the minimum check that you were willing to accept? Um, you know, I think it was fairly arbitrary to be honest. Uh, you know, if, at least for me, I can't speak for anyone else. Um, it was just, uh, it was like, okay, if I accepted this much money, then that would be an amount that I very likely would not have been able to earn uh, over the past six years doing anything else that was available to me. Um, and so I would, I would consider this from an opportunity cost standpoint to have been worth it. Um, and even if it was something below that, right, it would be, it was just kind of a question of, you know, looking back over this process, would I have done it again? Uh, and, and what amount of money would I, would I need to have made to say yes to that? 
that's a really cool way to think about it, right? Like, what is my market rate as an employee, and you know, and 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 making sure that I would have I, I'm I'm walking away after tax with with you know more than I would have earned had I just you know been an employee for the last six years or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's weird though because as I say that, I I I disagree with it to a degree as well. Um, you know, because I think that uh, I've had a lot of conversations with our employees about look, you know, there are far more predictable uh, ways to to make money than this. And so uh, if you're in this for the, the financial rewards, then you're in it for the wrong reasons. Uh, it's very uncommon to be able to build something. You know, we go through life uh, consuming the fruits of other people's labor, uh, the technology that they've developed and the, you know, the, the, the tools that they've built. And it's, it's, uh, it's a rare opportunity to be able to build tools that other people are going to use and to really create the future that other people are going to live in. Um, it's, it's challenging to find opportunities where you really like the people that you work around and where the problems that you're working on are both challenging enough to keep you engaged as well as uh, meaningful enough to be worth all of those challenges. Um, and so, you know, the more that you can you can find uh, intrinsic value in in that opportunity, the the happier that you're going to be. And the more that it's based on some kind of financial outcome, the more you set yourself up for disappointment. Uh, and so, uh, like, I, that's why I kind of say it was arbitrary, right? It was, that was, that was a general kind of, uh, lens through which I was looking at what we were getting. Like, could I have earned this amount of money or could I have saved this amount of money elsewhere? Um, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, if I'm really practicing what I preach, then those, those numbers are kind of meaningless. Got it. We if you had a friend that you don't work with, another college roommate maybe that you that you didn't start a business with, and he or she came to you and said, "Look, I, you know, I'm thinking of selling my company. Uh, do you have any advice? What might you say to that person?" Uh, I would give them I would give them three pieces of advice, uh, and I've already talked about two of them, so I'll add another one in just for good measure. But uh, you know, one was. Uh, a, a, don't stop exploring other alternatives. You always need to be able to walk away from a deal and you always need, there's going to be a time when you will wish that you had leverage or you'll be glad that you created leverage for yourself. Um, the second one that I mentioned before is getting your shareholders involved in the process as early and often as possible. Um, an another thing that I would say is that however long you think this process is going to take, it's going to take longer. Uh, and so, you know, in an abundance of caution, you should assume that it's going to take about three times as long as, as you think it's going to take and plan accordingly. So if you knew that you had to budget for a time period of, of nine months instead of three months, for example, what decisions would you make differently? You know, would you cut your costs? Would you raise more money? Um, how do you, you want to make sure that you're standing strong at the end of that period? Um, and not, you know, not desperate. Um, and then the the last piece I would say just on valuation and negotiations is that everyone is is going to choose uh, a lens on valuation that is most advantageous to them. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if you're the entrepreneur, then you're probably going to say, well, uh, I'm going to choose to value this company based on the future value that I'm going to be able to create for you as the acquirer. Uh, if you are the uh, acquirer, you're probably going to say, look, you know, I'm going to take a look at your past three years of revenue and average that out and then come up with a with a multiple of that. Right. Because that's going to be give me that's going to give me the most advantage. Um, and so you want to you want to be involved in those conversations as early as possible to make sure that you're influencing the lens through which the acquirer is looking at value so that they can see, you know, uh, 
we shouldn't be thinking about this from a revenue multiple perspective. We should be thinking about this from a, a, a value creation perspective. Um, because once they've had those conversations amongst themselves and they've submitted a term sheet, it's hard to get them to walk back those things. Uh, you know, you want to, you want to influence it before it's too late. Great advice. Love it. Pete, what's the best way for folks to reach out if they want to say hi? Do you want to point them to a website or if they wanted to say hi, what's the best place to do that? Sure. So you could definitely uh, find us at Relio.com, R-E-E-L-I-O.com. Um, you can check out Fullscreen.com as well, which is you know, the website of the uh, uh, of our acquirer. Um, and uh, if you wanted to reach me on LinkedIn, my name is Pete Borum, last name B-O-R-U-M, and I'm, I'm happy to uh, happy to connect with anyone who's interested. Pete, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.